Hey everybody, this is Nuggets in Verse. I'm your host, Philip Shear. I have long-form conversations with entrepreneurs, athletes, working folks, and anyone with a story to tell. I hope you find your nugget of truth or inspiration in this episode. All right, so my guest today is Greg Cummins. Uh, I know Greg uh, through the cycling world, and uh, Greg had uh, helped us with Opawapu gravel um, experience for a few years, and uh, I think we probably first met probably in the mountain biking realm, I would assume. Yeah, Earth Riders, I think, when you lived way out south, I believe. Yep, yep. Uh, when I was working on uh, the Blue River uh and I was working at Blue Riverville Parkway trails all the time, so at, or burp, I should say. So, um, but you're you're somebody that's been plugged into the cycling community for a really long time, and uh, I know you've got some some great stories about uh, cycling in uh, Kansas City and and, and uh, even abroad. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. And it's your birthday, if, I, if I'm allowed to say that. Yep, I'm birthday boy I can today. edit it out if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been in Kansas City like 29 years now. I met Nicole, my wife, then, and uh, we've been married 25 years tomorrow. And um, Congrats. So I joined Earthriders within a year of me moving here just because I was into cycling and met most of the old school guys way back then, probably about, probably right at 28 years ago. Um, pull the, pull that mic just a little closer to you. Yeah. Um, so for those that don't know, Earth Riders is kind of like the social, like, um, interactive portion of, um, kind of mountain biking in KC has been for a long time. It's a cycling, mountain bike cycling community. And we used to have race teams separate, uh, a part of it. Now they've separated out many years ago, but yeah, I raced for Boulevard and Earth Riders way back in the day. Yeah. Was there a lot of mountain biking uh, racing in in Kansas City? Kind of, I because I probably uh, late nineties is when I kind of started mountain biking. Yeah, I started. I moved here in ninety four and came out here to medical school, and then ninety uh, five is when I probably late ninety four, early ninety five is when I joined Earth Riders, and uh, we didn't really have much racing back then. We had like three main trail systems was all then, and they were kind of primitive but definitely very well maintained by a volunteer community and uh, then it's boomed uh, in the late 90s we started racing i raced for boulevard like 98 to 05 somewhere in that neighborhood range mm-hmm. i remember uh, a race or two at landau but racing's always been kind of difficult with our uh rain situation and and muddy trail things it seems like we've never really had like a consistent mountain bike uh, race uh, that that kind of has held through time. Yeah, our trails here are, are not very forgiving when it rains, and we don't abuse them. So if there's a race schedule for X date and it happened to rain that weekend, we'd have to postpone it. And there's other races that conflicted when we reschedule, and it was a kind of a mess. Arkansas, you can ride in the rain just fine for most trails around here, not so much. Yep. Um, I think that was always the most uh, frustrating thing for me. Um, I, I, and never, never did it, never rode a road bike or this gravel thing didn't exist. And, um, I used to, um, I feel, feel bad saying this, but I used to (laughs) make fun of anybody that I would see in spandex and riding road bikes. And, uh, my buddy 
Craig invited me on uh, some like towny road rides, and I finally gave in, and uh, I was so happy that I did because then I had something to do when when yeah. uh, the trails were wet. Now I really don't even mountain bike at all, so it's kind of yeah. come full circle. We used to do a lot of urban rides when it was rainy and nasty otherwise. Then gravel started opening up, and you could do some gravel, and you could get a mix of fun stuff and stay off the trails and let them heal up briefly. <laughs> yep. There's a lot of opportunities for fun urban rides in Kansas City for sure. Yeah, that I remember when downtown was totally vacant. That was our place we'd go to all the time. There was nobody down there on Saturday, Sunday, Absolutely nobody now. You can't get around down there. There's so many people. Yep. There's some like tunnels and some weird places in Kansas City, and some, you know, parking garages are fun. And kind of Craig again introduced me to all of that kind of craziness and riding down alleyways and and, and just weird like nooks and crannies of the city that you didn't realize were there. Exactly. Places you didn't know existed. And then uh, when we started racing cyclocross here around 2000, 2001 range, um, one of the promoters, Jeremy Haynes, uh, put races on at little small parks that you would drive by in your car five days a week, never know they were there. And he would open them up, put a race there, and people were like, wow. And it exposed parks, inner city parks to people that they didn't know existed. Uh, I know when we were working, uh, kind of in the early days working at the, on the, the blue swope connection, um, there was talk that once that was all finished, that would be possibly the, the largest, uh, trail system in a, in a urban environment. I don't know if that's still true. Probably not with, uh, What's going on in Arkansas? Yeah, but. outside of Arkansas, I think it's probably still pretty true, and it's uh, it may actually mileage-wise exceed what they have or will soon. I don't know for sure on the details there, but um, we do have a really good uh, setup here. Um, so I wanted to kind of tie um, any way I can. I like to tie guests to Excelsior or, or the area and um, – Something you had a friend that lived in kind of the Lawson area, right? And you would uh, you would uh, grab his truck and and uh, and uh, cruise the Opawapu route for us uh, during the race. And I've got to be honest, I uh, um, always felt a little better on race day knowing that there was a dock out there, <laughs> yeah. even though I don't really think of it that way. I think of you that way, uh, just like when we're talking, but uh, but. Uh, um, it's like always gave me a little bit of little added comfort. I've always been one to jump in and do whatever needs done. I don't even think about it. And I just, and I, I like when I used to race, I'm doing air quotes here with my hands. When I used to race, somebody would be off on the side of the trail with an injury or a mechanical and I'd stop and help them and then go on. Cause that's me. Yep. We'll, we will probably get into ragbri a little bit, but, um, I joined a, a ragbri team called purple jam. 2012 and just a with uh, with a couple friends of mine but the entire team were complete strangers I didn't know you know didn't we didn't know anybody except for me and a couple friends that just randomly joined this team and there's a couple docs on that team and so that always made Ragbri a little interesting because yeah. uh, if you were riding with them you'd probably have a couple stops uh, during the day every day. Yeah, years ago I used to ride. I rode fixed gear my first ten years on Ragbri, and then uh, my head tube ovalized a bit, and it worried me, so I retired that bike. And I 
have gone to wimpy gears now. And um, I used to carry in my back um, bag, I would carry medical supplies. I'd carry sam, a couple SAM splints. And anybody medical knows they're little aluminum foam-covered splints. Mm-hmm. And um, one year I used two of those in about a two-mile period. Split to one guy's ankle, another lady's wrist or arm, I forget. And then uh, the ambulance came, and they were already packed up, ready to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. So definitely I want to talk about RAGRAI. It's something that's, like, dear to my heart for sure in cycling. and uh, But people probably won't have any idea what we're talking about. So RAGRAI is, uh, stands for Registers Annual Great Bike Ride Across Iowa, correct? Correct, yep. So I grew up in Iowa and I like knew about this thing my my whole childhood, but it was just like this, like it meant nothing to me and I it didn't even pay attention to it. And it wasn't until well into being an adult that I wound up doing it. It it started with, uh, I think like a couple of reporters decided to like ride across the state of Iowa to maybe write a story or something like that. And then more and more people started tagging on. And then here we are 50 years later and it's the largest, um, I'm pretty sure it's the largest um, organized, ride. organized, yeah, like tour type ride. So it's not a race. Yeah. Um, it's just kind of like a rolling party slash carnival slash food trucks. Whatever you want it to be. That's exactly right. That's what I tell everybody. Like you can have your, your rag break can be anything. It can be like your entire family in tow, like having like almost like a wholesome or it can be like full fledged, uh, debauchery <laughs> just to be fair. I, I think it's not as bad as it used to be. I think, uh, um, there was a time when it got a little crazy, but yeah. I think that's kind of gotten a little, cleaned up a little it, it's bit. It's tamed down a lot and you'll see families on a quad tandem, pulling a trailer or two behind them, five or six people in one vehicle, so to speak, pedal powered. I always loved the, there was a band that was on um, at least a couple years that I went. Um, It was three guys and they kind of had a, I want to say for sure had one trailer, but they would, they had all their gear and they would just uh, pull into every like pass through town and overnight town. They just sit up on the street and in play, which I always loved. They were actually pretty good too. Wish I could remember their name. Yeah, Ragbri says 400 to 450 ish miles west to east, a full week, seven days, and it's a fun ride. It's it's just do what you want it. You make it what you want it to do for you. Some people get up early, try to race to the finish at the end of the day, and then most of us just casually take it as we go and have a good time as we go check out the scenery, support the locals, go from there. Yep. I've always thought like the northern routes, I don't know what you think about this, but I always thought northern routes are a little better. It's like the farming communities in the north have like sustained a little better than they have in the south. And so the towns were a little bit more alive, like the further north you went. I've always felt like that. My um, wife's family's farms just outside Shenandoah, south, extreme southwest Iowa. In fact, her mother went to school in Missouri. They were that close to the state line. And I've heard it put this way. I haven't verified it. And I believe it, though, that 80% of the money in Iowa is above I-80. And for that reason, there's just a lot of poorer, smaller towns on the south yep. side. Somebody will probably hate me for saying this, but that's what I've heard. And I think it, a lot of is true. There's some really beautiful towns on the south side, Ottumwa and Fairfield. Some others are gorgeous. Creston, everything along there. But uh, And I think it is true. The soil type and the farming definitely above I-80 is more productive, so mm-hmm. to speak. My uh, so I grew up in Eldon, Iowa, which is right by, right, kind of right between Fairfield and Ottumwa. Mm-hmm. So I've been fortunate enough to roll through 
kind of my hometowns. Yeah. Not the small town I grew up in, but or near, but through Ottumwa, uh one year and through Fairfield one year, yeah. which is always cool. And but this year it's being the fiftieth year. It's probably going to be insane. Yeah, they are pretty much paralleling and keeping with um, John Karras's first route. There's a few of the minor changes because cities have changed a lot in fifty years, um, but they're paralleling pretty much paralleling eighty. West to east, uh, very similar towns. It's the first time going through Des Moines in 50 years, Des Moines proper. Okay. It's been in Burbs of Des Moines, but not Des Moines proper. And this is going to be crazy. They're setting, they're planning to, and I'm sure they will set from Ames to Des Moines, a Guinness Book World Record. They're anticipating 100,000 plus people organized bike ride. The biggest world record now is like 48,900. We'll, uh-huh. They'll break that easily. <laughs> I remember one year it went from Dallas. Center is that a mm-hmm. Dallas Center yeah, yeah. in into Des Moines or I don't know if it's Des Moines proper but I think that day was like twenty five thousand people and it yeah. was so nuts that we actually took a paved trail instead of the yeah road. there's always they always go close to Des Moines but haven't actually been into they've been in Urbandale and they've done um, Bondurant Altoona on the east side and uh, but they've not gone into Des Moines proper in fifty years since the first one and this is going to be nuts yeah. Um, and then uh, Leonard Skinnerd. This oh god, yeah, <laughs> and Fog Hat. Yep. And I saw Bushes <laughs> one night. Uh, yeah. It's it's just almost undescribable. Like I try to describe it to people, but man, it is it is this it is a wild thing. Um, I don't know that you could ever create this again. Like it's just kind of happened a little bit on accident. This idea that you roll across the entire state and these little towns just roll off the red carpet. Or like a like a sleepy little town with like one bar and like one church and yeah. and maybe a hardware store or something and and uh, the, suddenly that one bar does equivalent of an entire years in business and years in one day. easily yeah <laughs> you get a town of five hundred to thousand people and they'll have thirty thousand people rolling through there one day <laughs> yeah it is so crazy there's just so many little things like a spaghetti dinner at, at like a local church. Yeah. Like there are things that you have to do in Ragbri. You have to, you definitely have to have like a spaghetti dinner at a, at a church. You've got to eat some pie, um, Beekman's, Mr. Porkchop, all of those things. Yeah, the, the, the local ones are ones I always try to support. There's a lot of yep. corporate chains that are out there that for the big, uh, vendors but i like to support local as much as feasible like even like boy scout troops and like little tiny like local organizations will just sell gatorade and probably are able to raise a lot of money just doing those things uh so so like me you, you ride on a team for reg Bride. yeah all right with team pink floyd uh the bach brothers at mountain bike down here that's how i got started up 2003 is my first year so we had Joe, Gary, and Greg Bach, and then uh, they're all from Lamar's. The bus is out of Lamar's, so I've been riding with these guys for 20 years. Joe, Joe, um, I've, is is one I knew here real well, mountain bike wise, and um, Gary Bach. But Greg Bach, those two haven't been in, in ages. Hint, hint. Uh, their brother Greg Bach up in uh, just outside Omaha, he goes pretty mm-hmm. regularly. We have a Purple Jam team member that's uh, that lives in Lamar's. Do you all? Like, how do you tra- traverse the end back to the starting place, or ha- how do you guys do that? Well, the bus, we sometimes have a paid bus driver. Sometimes we just drive some. I used to work for farmers, so I can drive a Allison, 6.2-liter Allison, 10-speed diesel, fine. Some people can't. Mm-hmm. So I drive it some if we don't have And we just alternate people driving half days uh, if we don't have a driver. Mm-hmm. So we 
stop going east. Uh, each day we stop at the meeting town, the middle town. The bus is always at the middle town, sometimes another place or two if there's an off-route party. Then on the way back, it's a long jaunt back from east back mm-hmm. to west in a bus that's not a turbo diesel but a diesel with hills in Iowa that you make 40 miles on the 45 mile an hour on the interstate and some of them going up the hill. <laughs> so our bus was uh, it, there was different owners now, but our bus always lived in Sibley, Iowa, which is in uh, northwest Iowa. Everybody would kind of head up to Connie's house, and and we'd usually like spend the night there, and then all take the bus to the start town. So there'd kind of be a little bit of a party that would start on the way to the start town. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> man, so much fun. I will say that uh, as the years got on, went on, like I I got a little bit more and more worried about riding on this bus with a bunch of uh, <laughs> with a bunch of. Uh, People like running around and and drinking, um, like in this like bus is like rolling down the road and we're not wearing seatbelts or nothing. And I, like as the years went on, I'm like I started thinking about that. I'm like, man, I don't. <laughs> I hope this thing doesn't crash. That's why it's best to have a de- we have a designated driver. It works out the best. And then uh, and as we moderate moderated over the years due to aging, it's much more yep. calm than it was 20 years ago. <laughs> yep. We had a, we had a preacher that drove our bus for a while. That was good. That was like a, you knew that he wasn't, uh, he was, he was going to take care of us and, yep. and he wasn't going <laughs> to misbehave. So <laughs> the, uh, so you said 2003 was, three was first. your first year. Yep. And I missed one year in there for a medical meeting, the wilderness medical society. And then, COVID year, of course, it didn't yeah. go. So 20 years I've been doing it. And- so RAGBRAI is kind of a sore subject for me right now because uh, I had these big plans. Uh, ben and I were going to we're gonna bag RAGBRAI. So I've always done it in a team and always mm-hmm. kind of had like all the comforts of host families and, and the bus. And I really just wanted to do it kind of just completely self-supported. And so we had this, we had this plan. We were going to do RAGBRAI this year with it being the 50th year and we we're going to bag it. And then I changed locations for work. And of 52 weeks in a year, our inventory fell on that week. So I can't go. So I'm pretty bummed out. And to make matters worse, I think when it comes out of Des Moines, it's going through Mitchellville, which is where my dad lives. Yeah. And I'm almost certain it's actually going in front of his house because he got a notice from Rugby. So like literally it's going to pass in front of my dad's house. I stop off at Mitchellville periodically, commuting back and forth to Iowa City. So, so uh, I don't know if I'm gonna I'm gonna try to figure out what day it's gonna roll through there, and if there's a way, at least I can get up there for uh, at least for that day, maybe. So we'll see. Yeah, it's not a bad drive, thirty five eighty. So you did a trip over to Scotland for a for a ride. Did 2017 and 19. So you did that two different years. Yeah, okay. and I was planning to go back in 2021, but something messed that up. And haven't been back yet. What was the uh, kind of a, a rough go in one of those years? Was <laughs> yeah. that the last one? 2019. Okay. I made about 300 mile mark of the 550 miles and uh, got hypothermic and frostbite pretty bad at the end of May, first of June. <laughs> so just like tell us about that ride specifically. Is it an organized ride? Is it? It's it's organized but completely unsupported. They cap the number of racers and riders and. Uh, so in 2017, I was one of 62. There were two Americans, and the rest were all mostly European, a few from Australia, et cetera. And um, in 2017, my lungs acted up. I'd, I've, I've had chronic lung problems off and on my whole life, and I had finished up antibiotics. 
about a week before I went over there and I had a spare set of antibiotics and steroids if I needed them. And at about the 60 mile mark, my lungs acted up. It was cold and raining and I made the decision to bail the next day and I felt good enough the next morning. I thought about going on, but there's no hospitals near there. I knew if I backpedaled, I'd be in bad shape. So I rode um, 40 miles more out of there. So I rode 100 miles total and took a train and bailed back to the starting point. And then 2019, uh, it was, the first day was really nice. It was kind of upper 50s and kind of cloudy. And then a uh, North Atlantic storm rolled in. And I, so in 2019, I did not want to take a racing spot. So I did it as an individual time trial. ITT started two days before the official race. And um, up uh, on the second day, got hit with that North Atlantic storm at the very end of May. It's like May 27th, thereabouts in that neighborhood. And I, I had no idea because it's totally unsupported. You carry everything. Uh, mm -hmm. There's water everywhere. You don't need to carry a whole lot of water. You can always get good water supply. Food's another whole issue. It's very remote. It's 550 miles, about 52,000 feet elevation gain. And the highest you go is 2,700 feet at one point. But you do a lot of... Uh, 2,200 feet up, down to sea level, 2,400 feet up, down to sea level, a lot of up and down. Every lock pretty much is sea level-ish, and then you go up to 2,000, 2,700 feet. Um, and I didn't know until like a week or two after it that I, when I bailed, I was in, as a medical person, in total denial. I didn't know I was that cold, um, that it was uh, minus 8 degrees C. It's like that's about 18 degrees. I thought it was in the low 30s. <laughs> It was sleeting, snowing. I couldn't feel my fingers on the brake levers. I kept having to look to see if they were there or not. Oh, man. And I rode 18 and a half hours that last day when I was so cold, but partly because, A, I didn't know it, and, B, I wanted to get where I was going. What What's the name of the of this route? It's, it's the Highland Trail 550. Okay. So what's the, like, when I imagined Scotland, I imagined actually something similar to around here, like, like rolling hills and uh, – um, what, uh, what kind of terrain is it? It's, it's rocky and wet. And that's one reason I did single speed 2017, because I didn't want to about a derailleur hanger. There's one bike shop and then 550 miles roughly. And, um, in 2019, I went with a roll off hub, uh, roll off 14 speed internal gear. And, um, it's 75% off road, 50% single track. And the rest is road and gravel. Um, and it's very, very remote and you have to time your resupply points at the towns when they're open, which is challenging. So I always carry some various foods with me to have. What was your, your goal for the 550? I just wanted to finish. I mean, that's, well, how about um, as far as like time frame? Um, I was, I was on target. I was shooting, I was shooting for initially in 2017, I was shooting for seven to 10 days cause mm -hmm. I, not a racer anymore, just ride. And then knowing it a little bit more in 19, I was shooting for more like seven or eight days and I mm -hmm. would have finished it in that time frame. I had my feet not gotten huge as a cow and frostbite, lost a couple toenails. <laughs> uh, so are you pitching a tent or yeah. is there, what's uh, the there's overnight the, situation? Overnight, there's public access shelters for, for safety reasons that are uh, accessible at various points. And it's first come, first serve, and there's usually plenty of room in those if you get get there. And, like, the first night I slept in the Bothy, B-O-T-H-Y is what they're called. The, there's a whole Bothy um, uh, community there where you can go help out and donate and stuff and 
Uh, I've donated some just because they really do help people out, get you out of the weather. Uh, so I stayed in the uh, the one bothy I called the asbestos bothy because for a couple years that I've been going, it has white spray paint closed asbestos, but it's open for emergent use. <laughs> Still scrape the walls. So what is what's bothy? It's just a public access shelter, like a okay. cabin. Okay. Uh, basically, a, it used to be old hunting cabins that are on estates that are used for public access to get people out and safe. And I, I sheltered in one in 2017, um, the Kalara, C-U-L-R-A, Bothy, with a uh, guy who was uh, from uh, Barra. It's uh, one of the uh, uh, island off the sky. And he was a water engineer, nice guy, and he was uh, sheltering in there as well. We had a good chat, and weather backed off, and he went south, and I went north. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people know the movie Train Spotting. The core station is one of the is the station where they get off there and they start look it's sitting on the bridge and looking. That's one of the places we go right by. And then if I don't find a bothy or can't find a bothy or bothy's full, just tent. So I've got a one a bivy, one man bivy, bivy uh, big yep. Agnes that I use. I've done uh, one bikepacking trip. Uh, I need to do more. I've I kind of like accumulated all the gear, which is kind of the fun part. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun. And so the first on 2019, the first one I stayed at the Asbestos Bothy. The second night I stayed at a campsite and paid like a nominal fee, like five pounds for a campsite, and had access to things there. The third night I stayed at one I call um, it. It was an old cabin, uh, old uh, rancher's cabin. And the people knew the race was coming along, so there was a fire going outside when I got there. It was like, sweet. And I call it Sheep Ship Cabin because I had to sweep the floor to be able to put my tent down inside the cabin. It had a roof, but no windows, no doors, but it was shelter. Yeah. And that, it was brutally cold that day. And then the next night, tented, and then one more night, I stayed at what I call the Axe Murders Woodshed, which was a guy's woodshed up on a hill and I slept in that, and it was like a 40-mile-an-hour wind coming off the North Atlantic. I was almost at the northwest tip of Scotland on that one. And that's the night that was really, really cold. And the next day, it was 18-and-a-half-hour day that I got my damage. Man, an 18-hour day is a long day on the bike. Yeah, and it's light It's light about 20, 20 hours a day up there. And when it's dark, it's not really dark, dark. It's just yeah. darkish. Like people can just kind of can invite you in or – or was that all, these are all the Bothies? Those are all the Bothies, okay. except for the Axe Murders Woodshed, which I just saw, and it was a shelter, and I went for it. And mm-hmm. um, then later, as I'm setting up my tent and sleeping bag inside there and trying to board up the window to block the wind and snow and ice coming in, I see a guy looking up. I'm going, nope, this is mine. And I found <laughs> out later it was a guy I know, Javi Simon, a crazy, crazy Spaniard, and Javi is a machine on a bike. He does it on single speed every year. And um, Javi wound up going down to the person whose axe uh, murders woodshed it was and was trying to get up under the eave of a barn. And the guy busted him, invited him in, cooked him a dinner, let him wash his oh, clothes, man. and Javi slept in a bed. Nice. <laughs> um, do you know Ty Bragg? No, I don't. Okay. He's he's somebody I've gotten to know, um, to know through Opawapu. And he did a – what was it called? Um, it's a, like a bikepacking – Ride, I want to say, across Nebraska. It ends in Omaha. He actually yeah. raft and float down the river for a little while at the end, or, or towards the end, I think. But anyway, when he was doing this, man, I wish I could remember the name of it. Or maybe it was, was it South Dakota? I don't know. I'm getting it confused. Yeah. But uh, he he has a story about somebody had a an apartment 
just a random apartment that wasn't being used. And he just randomly met this person. Like they're like, Hey, do you want to stay in this apartment and, uh, you know, sleep in a bed tonight? And, um, those are the things that, that are so cool about those trips. So the only real requirement for the Highland trail race is you have a spot GPS or similar device. They can find your body should need arise and, um, and to call for help. And then, uh, and of course a helmet, that's basically the rules for the thing. And they, uh, Alan Goldsmith, the promoter, kind of caps it at about, used to be 60, now it's more like 80. But mm-hmm. uh, there were, the, in 2019, there were 72 people and 13 finished out of 72. So this is actually it, a pretty, like, it was, harrowing. It was brutal trip. that year. Yeah. Is it typically every year, like, a pretty challenging, like, uh, thing to complete? Or is it just dependent on the weather? It's dependent on my schedule because 2017, the weather was kind of baddish. 2019 was horrible. 16 and 18 were really nice weather. It was like, in fact, in 18, they had a heat wave. A heat wave in Scotland is in the mid-70s, and a Mm -hmm. lot of those people were bonking from heat exhaustion, dehydration, and I would have been just totally fine with that. (laughs) (laughs) So you spent some time overseas. I don't know much about this, but I... From the the gentleman that you uh, knew that lived up here, I think you talked about, um, is that where you met him or? um... Yeah, so my dad retired Air Force in 76. We went over to Saudi in 77 to 81. And um, that's, I worked over there a couple of years. And that's where I met Frank. Frank lived in Jeddah across the street from us. And uh, my dad and Frank worked together. And Joe, Frank's son, and I worked. I I thought about uh, I thought about that yesterday because we um, I went on a or maybe it was the day before um, went on a ride and we'll at, a lot of times we'll wind up up in Lawson and we'll take Salem all the way back into Excelsior which is almost downhill the whole way which is pretty neat and uh, rode by that that uh, yeah. by his place the other day and there was somebody out there like spraying weeds or something so. One thing I want to talk to you about, you post a lot on working with and um, helping out vets. And that seems to be like something that, that you really enjoy and you talk about a lot. Yeah, I was uh, at the VA right out of med- medical school and residency in Kansas City. I was there for uh, just about three years total at Kansas City VA and then went private practice. And growing up, military my dad retired a career air force in 76 um i grew up on bases and my dad was a pennsylvania farm family there were eight males made it to adulthood and seven of the eight were in the military so there's a strong proponents there and uh looked at going to the military myself several years off and on and my wife's from here and i that uh, she knew i wanted to but uh, knew that would not go over well because she's never left kansas city area so about Four and a half years ago, I applied for an Army commission and thought I had it locked in as a physician. Take, they'll take older physicians, and I made it through my physical at Munson Army uh, brigade um, approval scroll request, which is rank submission, and then the HRC at Fort Knox blocked me because I've had four knee surgeries. And, yeah, I was like, at first I joke about Dr. Zeus talking a box at Fort Knox, but um, in the long run they made a good call because I've had some minor medical issues since then, but still I I wanted to do it because I wanted to do it. I was going in too old to retire and get a pension out of that. Um, my medical school loans had been paid off by myself long before and I offered to pay those off. I wanted to go in just to help, but I've always 
really, really enjoyed taking care of the vets over the years and got some real good stories. A lot of people said I should have done like a book or something mm-hmm. of the of those stories, but I've got a ton of those. Could you, is there any that you'd want to share? Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's one guy, a ton, but there's one guy uh, took care of it at the Kansas City VA probably in 2002 or somewhere in that neighborhood who flew in Chuck Yeager's unit in, in uh, Germany and out of England, and he was originally uh, training around this area uh, in Topeka probably is where they train most of the aviators around mm-hmm. here. And he'd broke, taken a hard landing and broke a lumbar vertebra on his back, say, boom, medicaled him out. And then his war heated up there, and his back healed up there, like, hey, come on back. And he was in Chuck Yeager's unit when the war ended, and he was flying P-51 Mustangs in, over Germany. And then uh, he got out of the Air Force, Army Air Force at the time, and Chuck Yeager went on to form the X-51 project. So it's kind of it's real cool, guys. Mm-hmm. And one another dude in particular I remember real well, it was when – in 2001, when uh, we started invading Afghanistan and um, and, and uh, started getting real hot over there, and there was a guy that I had, older black dude, super nice guy, and uh, he was in the ER one night with something kind of vague complaint. It was pretty busy. I didn't have a lot of time, to, unfortunately, that time to speak with him, but I got him through that, and he came back the next night, and thankfully it was a lot slower, and he had another vague complaint, and I had time to sit and chat with him. And I realized that uh, he was a, a, a Marine vet in uh, Bougainvillea in the South Pacific Islands, a lot of hand-to-hand, and that's some nasty, nasty combat in World War II there. And he was having flashbacks because he said, every time I turn the TV on and I'm, I'm locking my doors, got a gun in every corner of the room. I'm just And I realized he, his PTSD had flared because of all the news uh, of us invading. Mm-hmm. And was able to get him hooked up with the, um, the, the with psych and the PTSD folks, but it was really interesting because this guy was 82, 83 years old at the time, and when he came back to the to from World War II in the South Pacific, he was from Alabama, and he used to he he drove he lied about his age like a lot of those guys did back then, and he was like 16 when he joined the military, and he was driving a truck since he was about knee high to a gnat. That's a Georgia saying, and um, he was able to to teach guys how to drive deuce and half trucks he couldn't read nor write but he could drive the heck out of a truck and then when he came back from the war he learned to read and write a bunch of his buddies were Tuskegee airmen he learned to fly and when I had him at 83 years old he was taking computer college classes at Maplewoods Community College just to learn computers he was a heck of a guy that's awesome um, my buddy Jody who uh, owns other trails coffee him and his wife own other trails coffee and goods I had him on last week and he was in the navy and uh He's like, oh, you know, it, you know, no big deal. Like, it's just, just something I did, right? But, man, there's definitely something I can't even, I think, come close to, like, imagining kind of what uh, um, what folks went through in, in some of these uh, some of these wars and World War II. And, and my dad was a Vietnam vet. And uh, the things that people have, have gone through and then – and then they're just kind of suddenly popped back into into American society and like what a weird um, like transition, transition that must be. Yeah, yeah. My dad had 152 combat missions in Vietnam. He was there four years total. And uh, my cousin was a door gunner and a Huey in Vietnam. And they they these guys all you know my family all came back in you know well. Some people did not so much. And it's a, it's a difference, very different between person to person as to how things are handled, what they went through. Every situation is so different. 
Mm-hmm. And like I said, I was not, having lived in the Middle East four years, I used to be fluent in Arabic. I still speak a fair bit. I was speaking Arabic with a, a, a Lebanese neurologist of ours at the hospital the other day because I didn't realize she was Lebanese. And um, then uh, I was not afraid to go back, to go in the military and go be deployed over there just because my wife was in agreement to let to to let me do it because she knew I'd wanted to. And, you know, like I said, we've been together 29 years and she knows me well and knows I already wanted to do that. And then they blocked me at the HRC Fort Knox. But uh, but I've, I've never been afraid to jump in and do stuff. When I was, before I went to medical school, there's never been a doctor in my family. My dad was enlisted Air Force, a tail gunner and um and mechanic and a good buddy of mine from undergrad got me interested in medicine because he did like a lot of guys partied out of college his first year and went back became a paramedic firefighter and he wound up doing a 30-year career in the navy flying jets and command position all total and retired this september will be seven years ago now and he's the one that got me in my third year into medicine as an emt because i was i needed something to direct me mm-hmm. and most people part-time job for more money i worked full-time nuclear chemistry after um, undergrad and then i part-time for a third the money as an emt because i enjoyed it but i it was making i was making 650 an hour back then i couldn't make a living doing that but i loved it and then uh, one day i was getting ready to go to work at the nuke plant and my neighbor across the street was a pulp wooder and if you don't know in georgia they farm pine trees instead of corn so they basically plant pine trees, you cut them, and it goes to pulpwood. Even with the paper industry going mm-hmm. down compared to, you know, because of computers now, there's still a huge industry there. But this was in 1989, 90, 89, I guess it was. And uh, my neighbor and a buddy of his were shooting archery and bedding and then shooting guns and bedding, and there's drinking going on. Before long, their angers, they're, they're flared. And I'm sitting there getting ready to go to work at the nuke plant, and I hear a gunshot, a high-powered rifle, and uh, right by my house. And he used to always, Timmy, my neighbor, used to always, hey, Dr. Greg, or he, hey, Greg, you mind if yeah. I come over and shoot turtles? No, shoot rattlesnakes? No, no problem. Just let me, he, but he always let me know because he's a good old country boy. Yeah. And then uh, I hear this gunshot, and I step outside, and I see him standing in the doorway of his trailer across the street from me with a .30-06 leveled at his buddy in the yard who's holding a three fifty seven Magnum. And uh, so this is old pre-911 days rotary dial phone. So I'm dialing seven digits to get the sheriff after the first shot. And I'm on the phone with the sheriff telling him, get over here, as I hear a second shot and a scream. And I hang up on the sheriff, and then I hear footsteps, bam, on my front porch. And it was I didn't know this guy's girlfriend was over there. She comes over saying whatever his name is just got shot. And I'm seven more digits calling the name of the service I worked for part-time. And I had to testify in court as a witness for all this, both medical and personal, because I saw it and I tended to the guy. So I had a, a Bronco, and I forgot I had a kit in the back, and I always kept a little medical kit back there. And I just got behind the Bronco, and I said, are the guns put up yet? And my neighbor, I hear my neighbor yell, yeah. So I go over there, and I walk, I step up in the trailer, because I trusted him to not shoot me versus the other guy. I might not have gone over there as quickly, but I had it yeah. was less than two minutes from the gun, second gunshot I was in the place. Step up in the doorway, there's a four-inch piece of femur in the doorway, and I knew it was going to be bad then. And this kid had been shot pretty much point blank, 30-06, about an inch and a half above the kneecap. As he approached the trailer, my neighbor shot him. And a big pool of blood in the shag carpet. Of course, trailers all have shag carpet. Mm-hmm. And that's what – so anyway, after that, I, I 
rode up with the ambulance. We got a couple lines started him. They called the helicopter from Savannah, Georgia, and they came and picked him up, took him to Savannah, the trauma center. And I heard from the kid's mom and the trauma surgeon thanking me, and that made me decide, screw it, I'm going to go for it at medical school. <laughs> that's uh, that's some great motivation. What what was the conflict? that? Just hothead, young. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> they were good friends. That's that's <laughs> wild. But the funny thing was, I is rural Georgia and I had a you know, 150 gallon propane tank, and that 30 out six probably came within a couple inches of that oh, thing. Geez. Were they still friends afterwards? I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I in court, the guy had they were they were able to save his leg as of court, which was like a few months later. And he was an external fixator, but I really, knowing what I know med- about medicine now, I did not know then. I really bet he did not wind up saving that leg. I can't imagine yeah. that leg was salvaged, but he had it as of court time. So I. There's a country singer I can't, I can't remember who, but like a, his wife shot him, and then they got remarried or something. That's yeah. What. <laughs> country songs. I mean. Yeah, the miss made me think of that for some reason. <clears throat> like. Wow, so that would be uh, that would be some good motivation, I yeah. think. So, so, so I wound up going. So, since I was not the stellar undergrad student, I had had to go back and do, did my master's. So I started med school at thirty one. What uh, I'm kind of back backtracking a little bit, but this is something I was thinking of. Do you see a difference, like from World War II vet, um, Vietnam? Um, you know, the most, most recent conflicts, Afghanistan, Iraq. Do you see, like, uh, patterns or different things from those veterans? Well, uh, you know, my dad's dad, my grandfather was in World War One, and he was gastrobat by Germans, and he came back, big alcohol drinker, big smoker, and died at 54, uh, just didn't take care of himself well. But, you know, that was the old term shell shock back then, they called PTSD, and then... Um, then World War II, uh, that generation really just didn't talk about much, didn't complain about much, and and uh, you know it was the you know like we talked about earlier, you know they went through some stuff and it was there, they just dealt with it, and it's definitely very different. Uh, there's a lot of PTSD out there now, and a lot of things that flare that, and then uh, each war has been very different, of course, as well. I had one guy. At uh, in the hospital one time who was in a MRAP or Humvee with two or three of his buddies and they were all killed and he was in there and they couldn't get him out for like 24 hours and he has horrible, horrible, understandable claustrophobia. He cannot be in a room with the door closed. He just cannot handle being in any kind of moderately confined space. So just everything's very different. Everybody handles things differently. Definitely more the mental health issues that we're aware of. I'm not saying they weren't there before. Yeah. I've, I've wondered if like kind of as time goes on and I don't know, I don't know if civilized is the right word, but like human beings, you know, over time we've become more, um, more and more kind of trying to think of the right way to describe this. There's the best way I could describe it. So my grandpa who, uh, no longer alive, but if, uh, and I'm and I'm sure there are still people like this, but um, like if some stray if a stray dog would show up on on his farm, small chance he might take the dog in, but most likely he, he was going to shoot it. And you know it's just kind of an old school thing. Like 
Um, I, pr- I probably judge that differently. Um, he's been gone for quite some time, but I judge kind of that reaction differently from him, differently than maybe somebody like currently, right? Like it's a different time. Times have changed yeah. and people are, are um, just kind of view the world differently and live differently. I've always wondered if like the brutality of like a World War One, a World War II um, shouldn't be going down this road because <laughs> I haven't experienced it. But I just wondered if, you know, if it was less of a shock to the system than being in this like in this time where um, kind of everybody's living a much easier life and, and and not going through as many hard times or not, you know, struggling through like a childhood you know, with no running water and, yeah. and uh, you know, no electricity and suffering through, like, making a you know, subsistence of, you know, a, like a farming life or something like that, and then you go off to war. Like, is the shock different, just normal life and, and war different, uh, further apart? Yeah, and like you said with your grandfather, that chance are he grew up or was born or grew up during the Depression era, and, and back then feeding an extra dog yeah. versus nowadays you'd coax the dog in, feed it, yeah. get it to somebody for a new home. But, uh, I think, like you said, times are very different. I'm not sure if I fully knew where I was going there. All right. Well, once again, happy birthday. Thanks. Thanks for coming up to the uh, to the loft. It's a little muddy today. It's nice. I love this weather, though. <laughs> um, so we'll wrap up with uh, Sherry Nugget. What do you what do you got for us? Okay, so going back to me going to medical school later in life at 31 um, and never having been a doctor in my family before, I was not the best undergrad student. Um, I was my parents didn't expect me to go to college at all. My brother and sister, yes, not me, not so much. They thought I'd enlist the Air Force, get my tw- do my 20, get out like my dad did. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to college kind of because of that. Um, plus, I always loved biology, um, and they. Uh, so I went to college and I was, I'd study 20 minutes a night for a test, make a C, go, yeah. And then two years later, I realized my 2.0 GPA is probably not going to cut it in life. And um, so I started studying, working harder, and got involved in research and EMT and working and everything. And then, but it's hard to pull up a 2.0. So I graduated undergrad with a 2.34 GPA. Good luck getting to medical school with that. So that's another reason I didn't think about medical school. Mm-hmm. So then I, after that shooting incident, I uh, decided to go back to school. So I went back and did my master's with a professor I worked with in undergrad, doing some research with him, Dr. Oliver, and phenomenal. I was a provisional student in a uh, grad school. So I had to make a be the first two quarters. We did quarter system back then, or I was booted out, and I did, I did finish that. And so I finished my master's with a 3.86 GPA and published. So I obviously had the potential to do it and just didn't apply myself. Mm-hmm. But our I wasn't pre-med. I never was pre-med. I was general biology, but our pre-med advisor, I had to go to her for advice on medical school, and she flat out told me with my grades I would never get in medical school. And I pointed out my 3.86 GPA in my master's, and she said, everybody's expected to do that in their master's. And um, I sent her a graduation announcement for med school in 1998 when I graduated. So don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. If you want to do it, go for it. Apply yourself very well, excel, and you'll get there. That's great, man. All right. Well, thanks again for coming, and uh, hopefully we'll we'll get to ride bikes at some yeah. some point. Not and, today. And I'll maybe see you on a on a future ride ride. 
maybe right, on, yeah. in Hope. the 51st uh, uh, edition of Ray Hopefully tell them to change their inventory week. Yes, I know. Uh, <laughs> I have to find a new job so that I can go do Reg Bray. Uh, all right. We'll see you. All right. Thanks. This episode of Nuggets and Verse was recorded in the hayloft of our beloved Red Barn, just outside of historic Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Be kind and share your nugget.